Hello, my name's Patty Johnson. And I'm William Pauheida. Welcome to Explain Me. I'd say welcome back to Explain Me. That's right. It's been a full year since we've recorded our last podcast. Wow, that is crazy. What happened? Um, well, you know, Explain Me is a product of our passion. It's not necessarily paid work. So um, I think a lot of other things took over. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Came hard to do the work of organizing and producing a podcast uh, without any kind of money. Yeah, money, money is an issue, but we're trying something new. So uh, the format, I don't know, I kind of think the format to most listeners will seem pretty much the same. Uh, but we'll see. Basically, what we're trying is we're not going to, uh, we're not really going to edit this beyond putting some intro and outro music into our podcast. Yeah, and it might be a little more impressionistic. Yeah. Yes. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but uh, expect a, a looser, more free-flowing version of Explain Me. Uh, so we went to see the fairs, yeah. which was last week, the art fairs in New York. Uh, what was the big news, William? Uh, around the fairs or... Uh, about the armory. Oh, yeah. The armory announced that it's moving its location up to the Javits Center, which sits at the, um, you know, sort of the base of Hudson Yards. Right. And they're doing that in the fall of 2021. Is there going to be an addition? Okay. So it'll be next year in the fall. Yeah. So there will be nothing beyond freeze uh, for the... Uh, winter or no major major fair beyond freeze for the winter so one thing that you mentioned is that both freeze and armory were bidding uh on getting the space at the javits center well i actually don't know that i just saw that uh margaret kerrigan for the uh from the art newspaper she's the uh executive editor there uh was tweeting on twitter as as we tweeters do uh that this might be something that that might frustrate the people at Freeze. So it suggested to me that uh, she th- she assumed anyway, uh, she may actually have some knowledge about this. I wouldn't be surprised uh, that, that they were bidding for this too. But uh, I mean, we did a little bit of research before uh, opening up the pod and it seemed like based on the various relationships, uh, the armory would have been... Um, kind of a shoe-in for going to the Javits Center if yeah. that was what they wanted. Well, Armory is owned by Merchandise Mart, which is now a subsidiary of Vornado Real Estate Trust or Realty Trust, who has partnered with related companies or properties, that the developer behind the Hudson Yards. Um, they're, they're co-developing Penn Station. Uh, and that is overseen by the Empire State Development Corporation, um, which happens to sort of own and run the Javits Center, which is a state-owned space. So you can see there's a web of connections there. But honestly, it seems like a very good move that would benefit Hudson Yards to have the Armory Fair sitting, a, you know, a block away from their the vessel, the shed, their mall, and the high-priced condominiums that are still for sale. And I'm not sure if Vornado is developing anything in particular in Hudson Yards, but that's an ongoing rezoned area. So you can just see that web of interests sort of overlapping uh, to bring Armory 
up to New York City's new city within a city. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious. One of the, the questions I have is this, this sort of why now question. I mean, from the perspective, I guess like the sort of speculation I had, um, which just to issue the disclaimer, it is pure speculation based on no knowledge, was that, uh, you know, maybe it would benefit the Armory to not be competing with Freeze LA um, and Freeze uh, New York, which are sort of now taking up a lot of real estate in the spring uh, season. So maybe if they're moving to the fall, they have, uh, you know, they, they have some of, like, the international fairs to worry about, but less, uh, you know, New York fairs. Yeah, I mean, I haven't really thought through the competitive angles of this, but I think you had mentioned that Armory opening in the fall will be competing with Freeze London. Yes. And it's sort of an interesting move because, you know, that's the opening season for New York's gallery scene, which tends to attract a lot of people and be pretty mobbed. And it does seem to leave a longer sort of gap for art fairs in the spring, I guess. You know, um, Armory's always sort of buoyed that kind of winter-spring uh, fair season. Um, and it, you know, it does sort of leave Freeze New York all by itself. But Freeze New York has always seemed to be happy by itself in May. Yes. With its own special date on its own special island. You know, so I, I don't feel like freeze. Well, although is... I, I had heard some rumors like over Twitter again that uh, I guess it was last year that maybe freeze was like less than happy with their New York iteration. Yeah, that's I... a full rumor, by the way, like it's a disclaimer. Gotcha. Don't yeah, know. no, I know this is you know sort of breaking news and it'll be interesting to see how it you know sort of plays out. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting for me, at least, is that NADA stopped doing their New York fair because it puts such like a kind of extra burden on yeah. the galleries oh, yeah, sure. in New York. And so for Armory to kind of drop a fair right on the kind of premiere opening week of the New York galleries, it's going to do the same thing to the New York, the galleries that participate in Armory in New York. You know, that's going to be a double headache. And then that's just like a month or two out from Art Basel, Miami, you know. So, yeah, so I've sort of heard mixed uh, mixed reactions to this. So when I was at the when I was at the armory, or I guess maybe starting with Twitter, so before I got to the armory, I had a little exchange with Andrew Russith, who was the former executive editor at uh, Art News, and he was just like, "I think we should all agree that there should be a moratorium on art fairs in September because." You know, the openings are enough, plus, you know, who knows how long this coronavirus thing is going to go on, blah, blah, blah. So he was definitely, did not think that this was like a beacon of great news. No, um, and, and moving to the Javits Center, I know they've done some remodeling of that place, but when I think of the Javits Center, I think of auto expos and a kind of, uh, a place I hope to never really actually have to visit. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, I think I was, so I was there maybe two, no, three years ago uh, to pick up some bibs for a race. Uh, so that, that was the last time I was there. And prior to yeah. that, it was Comic-Con. Oh, yeah, Comic-Con. In like 2008. Right. So the Javits Center does not exactly exude a kind of 
allure that maybe building a tent on Randall's Island does. But I, I would agree with Andrew that, you know, the idea that having a fair stacked on top of the opening season diminishes what the galleries do, you know, and I'm uh, not totally in love with the move just for that reason. But I still can't get away from the fact that, you know, as a kind of real estate move, it sort of now puts an art fair at one end of the High Line at the Javits Center, and then people could walk all the way down the High Line down to the Whitney, and we've got just this art wall, you know. Oh, for sure. Going going up. Um, well, I guess two other things that I wanted to mention. Like, uh, one, when I was going through the armory, there was sort of mixed reactions there. So, like, I overheard a gallerist who I believe was an international gallerist, maybe from Canada, complaining about uh, the change to the fall and how this was, whether he, he was not sure whether he was going to do it. This was nobody speaking to me in any kind of official capacity, just something I happened to overhear um, and was quite happy about it just because I really caught somebody who was like, very complaining about it mm. um and then i talked to elizabeth denny about it and she was it was very clear when i was talking to her that she was talking to me in a press capacity because she was like oh i love it like it's i think it's gonna bring in a lot of people for um for that season and make it even bigger and and better yeah, so. no, no dealer who wants to participate in the armory is going to say oh, yeah, necessarily sure. a bad word about the so. move. So did anyone, did you discuss with anyone else or talk about what the other fairs like Independent or Spring Break uh, that we both visited will, will do in response to this? Are they going to move to uh, May and align themselves with Freeze or are they going to potentially switch to the fall and, and pile on with the armory? Well, that seems to be the big question. And I, I mean, I'm really curious about what Freeze is going to do because I just, I guess because I had heard that rumor somewhere that, um, you know, on the Twitters that like maybe Freeze was going to move from New York. I was like, well, if they move, like somehow that, that makes me feel like New York is like a lot less of a center and we're looking at LA. Um, I don't know that we're really there yet, but like that's what I had started to think about. How everybody moves, though, I, I don't know, and nobody's really talked about it to me. Yeah, so. I mean, I think, you know, if Freeze um, abandoned New York and just went to L.A., I think I would be fine with that, just considering <laughs> how many galleries do both the Armory and Freeze. I'd be curious, I'd be more curious to see if, say, Spring Break independent, maybe some other fairs take advantage of the fact that then you have no other major competing or anchor art fairs in New York. And will it be enough to kind of draw, you know, uh, international collectors to New York in the spring for their, you know, sort of annual visit? Right. Well, that does seem to be a big question because like, I guess, you know, I, th I think I had suddenly worried like oh if freeze leaves like what does that mean about the status of new york but really what i think it means is that there's a hole uh in the programming in new york that could be filled so yeah and not that you know um i was gonna go to scope or anything but there's still you know a number of fairs happening um in between you know the armory there's still the adaa is that changing its date or anything 
Not that I know of. I mean, it's probably good news for the ADAA, too, because that is a fair that I think sort of prides itself and, and an organization that really prides itself on promoting good business uh, values and and scholarship and um, connoisseurship in a way that the other fairs really don't. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it's been clear over the last couple of years that once Armory and ADA kind of split, it dragged it from like a one-week proposition in March to a kind of two-week split, you know, it just came, kind of kept dragging out oh, into yeah. a longer and longer thing. And then you have this little break in April, you know, and then you're back in May for freeze. And just, you know, I, I think it would be nice to not have as many fairs, you know, just from a kind of a artistic perspective and having to look at art in a less than ideal environment. Um, I can't say it makes me sad at all. But again, the, the how this reshuffling plays out and how it impacts everyone I think we're just sort of at the beginning of thinking about that. I mean, I will say that there's like a lot of good things about fairs from uh, even from a teaching perspective. Like, you know, I had to bring my students. Well, I didn't have to. I decided to bring my students to the Armory Fair. And like, you know, they're kind of just being introduced to art and they need to see a lot of it they need to see a lot more than they can see um because they're commuters so they're commuting in uh from new jersey and this was like you know the fairs can be a really kind of exciting place to watch people like watch students just like grow right on the spot so um you know is it the an ideal place uh to view art not so much but uh, it can be a kind of, all right, let's throw you in the water and see if you can swim type yeah. of experience. I wouldn't disagree with that. And I think that's part of what makes it exciting for collectors to come and get everything sort of condensed down. But I also feel like it's a kind of cliff notes version of what art is. And, you know, thinking back to my days as a student, I was totally shocked when I went to my first art fair. I was like, wait. I didn't know all these artists had, you know, two-dimensional practices or, you know, they made this many drawings or paintings. I mean, it really does privilege two-dimensional work. And I think one of the things we'll talk about is that certainly painting was one of the sort of trends that, that uh, was oh, for sure. worth discussing this year. Well, so let's talk about some of the trends. Sure. I think you, you were more an astute observer of this and have read a little bit more about uh, other critics' overviews of the fairs. But. Well, let's begin with fabric, because I think that that was something that was uh, in more than one fair. Like, I think bolts of fabric, uh, hanging ta tapestries, uh, carpets of any kind, uh, they were, I saw them a lot at the... Uh, at spring break in particular in the armory and we saw i now actually i don't remember i assume they were at the independent but i couldn't name a specific booth um so i think that that was definitely something that we uh we saw a lot of um uh i think uh we talked a lot about the presence of painting um mm -hmm. I think the thing that there's to be said about spring break and painting is that there was an extraordinary amount of 
terrible, terrible painting. Yeah, there was a like a kind of aggressively bad, bad painting, you know, um, that that I wasn't quite sure if it was um, purposefully bad, just or a lack of skill, or a kind of positioning of, of painting in a bad way to challenge ideas of mastery or um, technique. I. I just there was so when I when I went to spring break the amount of painting that I saw going through the tenth floor first really sort of started to turn me off and it was like painting mounted on painted walls painting mounted on all sorts of backgrounds um, and you know well I think, that's spring break for you right yeah. like the painting's not so great so let's like give it a colored wall see what happens right so let's the, like put some plants around it see how it performs whereas at the independent there was still a lot of painting i was surprised how much painting there was at the independent but the level of of an artist's ability to make a painting that is sort of de-skilled provisional um you know kind of a bad painting but really well done bad painting. There was more of that it, uh, independent. I mean, just sort of the quality of, of awkward, flat-footed painting was better there. So I have some thoughts about this um, in terms of like what we see and why we see it. Um, my personal opinion is that 99% uh, of the painting that we see at uh, spring break uh, is bad because... Um, it's actually bad. So like these are artists that, you know, they're not developed for whatever reason. Maybe like they, maybe they just aren't that good. Uh, maybe they're like fairly young and still have to work, work towards something else. Um, but you don't really know at that stage. And there's like, and it's sort of paired with bad curation when at spring break, right? So you end up with these salon walls of terrible paintings where you might be able to find one or two like things that stand out as like being possibly kind of good. And anytime, like when I was at the press preview, anytime I would ask about a particular painting that I thought was okay in a salon wall of crap, it had been sold. So like people kind of recognize this, this stuff that's like, okay, and we'll pull it out. Um, but to my mind, like there's a lot of like the way that spring break is also structured so that like you can do these giant installations. You have these like really kind of ambitious, uh, artists and curators building like whole kind of supports around things that may not be that great when it comes to painting. But like, I think there is a lot of other stuff, uh, other types of art that you see at spring break that usually makes it worth the worthwhile it's for me it's just never been the painting yeah and I think you know that idea of like putting some dressing around to kind of prop up the painting that might be sort of mediocre I mean for me that does kind of point to the kind of like museum of ice creamification of the fair experience that it is a little bit more than about just propping up the painting but trying to like not just propping up the painting because it's bad, but to prop up painting in general, like that it needs this experiential crutch to make people want to take selfies and kind of walking into an immersive thing when at the end of the day, most collectors aren't taking home that installation. You know, it's like the gift wrap that they get that gets thrown away. What they're taking home are these kind of small, in some cases, mediocre paintings uh, that they buy. 
You know, it's funny because I agree that that's definitely a thing and a cultural phenomenon, but I don't know if I see that that's like the specific strategy that gets used at spring break. Um, just because I think like, I don't know, I'm trying to think, uh, I can't remember the names of all the people I saw, unfortunately, but there was this one woman who did an illustration for, uh, the New Yorker, um, but also, oh, not the New Yorker. She did illustration, not cartoons mm-hmm. for the New Yorker. Um, we had a long conversation about this while I ate her Skittles. <laughs> um, but she also had like a salon wall of uh, paintings that she'd hung. And like, it seemed like the main reason that she had hung her paintings that way was that she had just wanted to sell the most that she could, you know? Um, Oh, you know what? I'm, she did not hang those paintings. Yeah. Now I'm remembering this was like, uh, Stephen Truax and, uh, Oh, John Chime. John Chime curated that room. And I was just thinking, those were some big paintings in that room. So she had some other kind of body of work. No, she, I mean, it was only those paintings. Wait, I th- I feel like we got, I'm not understanding the question. Um, the, the John Chime and Stephen Chirac's room, I remember that room partly because they were large scale uh, paintings, kind of yeah. representational. So the idea that I, I just didn't see anything that looked like New Yorker illustrations. She no, wasn't no, showing no, no, that... this just came up. Like oh, okay. I was just, here is this artist who you might know if you, happened to have seen these uh, paintings okay. and, like maybe but in any event she's actually a bad example because the room was not colored in any way there was not really like it was sort of an installation but like um you know there wasn't a lot of kind of uh, auxiliary support but i think um where i wanted to go with this was just sort of generally though like i i do feel like a lot of this can be to my mind, it seems really more like, um, like art school strategies um, from the painters, because like I don't like. I guess the thing is, is that sometimes you know I'll we'll see some of the uh, the more interactive art, and I don't know if all of the artists who are producing that um, necessarily have art school backgrounds, like. For example, um, I can't remember the name of the guy, but the guy who did, uh, basically you lie on this bed and there's a, a, a mirror that you look into and it's covered with pom-poms except for this tiny... Is it the same it's piece? It's the same guy, yeah. Was this one spring break ago or two, two spring breaks ago? Yeah. I can't remember his name either, but I just felt like it was like the cult room. Um because he, he wanted to invite you into his world. It's literally like self-titled. Yes. And that, like, yeah. I And he had a new soundtrack, and I can't remember what the old one was, but I am sure that this one was worse. <laughs> like, it was so cheesy that I just, like, like, last time, I think you had to tell me it was cheesy, and then I was like, yeah, okay. Because, like, I was kind of excited by this bed that went up and down, whatever. Uh, and you were right but this was just like I was really cringy like because it was this like 
awe-inspiring, like, soundtrack that, like, anybody could have made. Mm. Like, you guys don't know this, but, like, before we started the podcast, we were looking into uh, Vernado Vornado Realty Trust just to do a little bit of uh, research on the owners of the armory and, like, see what they were like. And they had this, like, promo video <laughs> for one of their buildings in Chicago. And it was accompanied by, like, terrible music that was just sort of supposed to communicate inspiring this. Mm. Same deal. Like, there's something, like, vaguely corporate about it. Even though the the whole like aesthetic is like totally DIY. Yeah, I I certainly saw. I, I glanced in the room and saw the bed was back. I just thought to myself, well, I'm not going to do it again. And I was also just curious, like, how do artists resubmit basically the same exact work two years later to an art fair? You know, that was just a curious thing to me that, you know, uh, it would it would kind of reappear. I mean. The other interesting thing to me is when we were there last time, uh, there was like <laughs> Massimiliano Gianni, the curator, the, the uh, you know head curator and artistic director for the new museum, had came and like there was this huge line to watch your eyeball with this piece, and he cut in front of everyone. And this time there was no line, you know. There was no line. Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't experience really any piece uh, that had a kind of line out the door. Or you'd have to wait a long time to to do. I ran into a traffic jam here or there in some of the narrow. Uh, uh, desk areas where you kind of have to squeeze past people uh, to get into some of the corner rooms. Yeah, and I had a uh, a photograph that I took during the press preview where, like, it was on the 10th floor and there was nobody there. It was just the gallerists all standing outside of their, uh, like, their office exhibition spaces waiting for people to come through. Mm. So, and at that point, like, I was having conversations with exhibitors who were talking about the smell of Purell just wafting through the air and, like... Oh, God, yeah. The coronavirus really potentially affecting uh, turnout. It, it certainly affected the way that I looked at the entire fair, all the fairs, the way that I sort of was experienced things. Um, they're just a kind of general apprehension. But before I forget, there's, there's like, two things... Um, you know, you sort of raise the idea that there are these kind of art school strategies. Yeah. Um, and one in which, you know, I think I could talk just a little bit. I, I also have to talk about this from the fact that I've been teaching college for a while now and I do regular studio visits with art school students. And one of my students from SVA, his name's Carlos Rosales Silva, um, has been making colored background installations in his studio at SVA for the last two years and is, you know, an artist of color and the idea of making, you know, getting rid of the white cube and having right. colored walls that relate to the idea of color in a kind of cultural sense has been an important move for him. And the fact that his installation at Spring Break w included two or I don't know if it was two other artists, but there were I think three artists in the space. And the show had been organized and shown in the Southwest and then traveled to spring break. And so it's a strategy he's been sort of pursuing to, to link the objects and the artworks on the walls to an idea of color that moves beyond purely the formal into a kind of, um, you know, when we think about POC artists and uh, 
you know, sort of different kinds of modernism. Um, and so I did, I, I just, I can give out uh, a little shout out to Carlos's room because I think it was a sort of successful example of using the kind of colored walls in a way that transcends something that is more than about creating a kind of just immersive or sort of exuberant environment or something. Um, you know, I, I, I would also, um, this isn't about uh, this particular student's uh, room, but I would be curious to see like whether um, how people put together their rooms tracks to their age. Like, mm -hmm. you know, is a is a younger group more inclined to create something that's more Instagram friendly than an older group? Yeah, I mean, I think that the age is an interesting question. Also, the strategy, though, of saying, you know, like, look, if we're really going to reject this idea that the white cube is some sort of a neutral space, that it can have a kind of political dimension to it and a critical dimension more than just being um, a brightly colored room like the Museum of Ice Cream, you know. Um, so I do think, you know, there's different reasons why an artist or a critic or, I mean, a curator might, you know, choose to kind of not use white walls for art, you know, which is the default setting right. of um, serious art. I just want to note that the Museum of Ice Cream, like the co-founder is Manish Fura, who comes from the art world. Oh, yeah. Um, I met Manish way back in early Williamsburg days when he was doing something. I forget what kind of art startup it was, but it was... Yeah, I can't remember the name of it now. I was say, it was, was like doing. art space or something, but there's so many things that have come and gone. And um, before you know, before we leave the art school connection, you know, one of the things about good and bad painting and what defines it is whether artists are still in development, whether they're young artists, if they're just yeah. out of school, entering this commercial landscape. And I can sort of give a shout out to one of my former students who I had worked with about four years ago. Um, Dominic Chambers, who had a solo show at Anna's Arena Gallery. And it's figurative painting, it's um, bodies in space, African-American figures, kind of daydreaming in parks. And I think, you know, the work has an incredible amount of potential. And I think as an artist, he's, he's, he's learning, he's growing, you know, and I've seen this work from when he was a junior uh, undergrad student to or maybe going into a senior year, but then two years at Yale and then right into Armory. And I feel like the work is on its way somewhere, but it's not quite there yet. Um, but that, that idea of like allowing artists time to develop uh, before it has to enter into these kind of like super commercial environments, it's sort of a tough question. Um, and I, you know, I hope Dominic gets the time and space to really continue to grow as a painter because I think he's really talented but I'm not sure if it was ready for you know the focus section of Armory well you know it's interesting that you talk about this because it like it's been a while since I've even heard anybody talk about like the necessity of giving time for artists to develop like this used to be like a default thing that people would talk about critics um and I mean, not just critics, it was just sort of part of, like, art news, and that seems to have become, like, taken a, a backseat to, like, I guess, like, the sort of market narratives that tell us that artists are developing if there are buyers for their works, right? Um, 
that's I mean I guess that's what I would I would see as a sort of cultural trend that uh, perhaps is not the most positive one. Yeah, I mean, if 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 we're you know if there's any complaint to be lodged against the fact that there there is just so much bad painting, say at spring break, um, you have to wonder what are the pressures to get more and more painting out into the world, um, and do we need all of it, and is everyone ready to be showing you know this kind of work, and I mean, having gone through spring break and seeing seen so much painting, very little of it actually just kind of stuck. You know, as right. something I'm going to remember to talk about. Well, and I think we had also, so we had also talked about like what happens, or maybe like the difference between uh, spring break and uh, the independent, where, you know, you can, the one thing that spring break really does give artists a chance to do is to develop conceptually, um, because they're, they're really, uh, they curate around a theme. Uh, I didn't really notice this year that anybody paid particular attention to it, but you're at least supposed to think about something. Did you, I, I, once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. I just kept thinking about, you know, it's, it's in excess is the title of spring breaks curatorial theme. But all I could think about was the band after that. And a kind of 80s glib, pop cheese. Yeah. And, you know, I think there was some aspect of that. But I would agree that, I mean, maybe just add to that, that some of the best work I saw at Spring Break was going the opposite direction. Oh, for sure. That was what's so interesting In excess, we're going to go with kind of minimal things. But um, I don't want to... Let's come back to that difference between Spring Break and Independent. Sure. Definitely. Um, just to finish up the trend conversation that we really (laughs) (laughs) took a sidetrack on. So we talked about fabric. We talked about painting. Uh, Tech was another thing that we saw. uh, I I think I identified as something that was in uh, spring break quite a bit. Um, And with something that Martha Schwindener had identified as uh, at the armory, but um, as I tried to explain what technology was at the armory, I failed. So I don't know if I could really uh, stand behind that, but there's certainly a lot of it at spring break. And if we're just lumping like video and projection into tech based stuff, I don't uh, believe that. You know, at this point, if I'm talking about tech work I need someone needs to strap a VR onto my face or there needs to be a five million dollar robot dancing I mean you know, these are the I, you know I certainly we saw a lot of kinds of technology at spring break like pointed out that there were fans blowing pieces of tin so we could be talking about old tech or we could be talking about QR codes or um, that infinite objects which was selling works you know embedded in screens I mean I mean, I would say, though, that of the technology-based galleries that, that have something of a profile, you saw um, you saw Bitforms there, mm-hmm. you saw a Transfer Gallery there, well, Kalani, you saw Infinite Objects. I think the only people you really didn't see um, was Rhizome. Right. So... Um, and I saw Tomas there, but I'm uh, from Postmasters, but I don't know what whether 
I, I didn't see them in an official capacity. I don't think they were doing a project at spring break this year. Um, that's for sure. And, you know, I think that trend of tech, it's interesting. I, I can't point to anything specifically at Armory that I would have said, oh, that's a great tech piece, um, or it's about tech. Um, whereas at spring break, certainly, there was a lot of embedded video, lots of kind of layered animated GIFs, um, and and certainly just, I, I would say, didn't need a special frame. It was just part of the work, or it's just another kind of tool that's being deployed. Yeah, there's a lot of that. So it just yeah. fits in more easily, and you, the whole identity is not built around, like, I'm a tech artist, or I'm a tech gallery. It's just, I'm an artist, and I might use some tech in the work. I mean, I think, like... We talked, I can't remember the name of the artist that did this, but like there was a QR code um, and there was a series of them where you could take your phone, line it up to the QR code and it might say like intersectional feminism on top and then you'd get, it would take you to the artist's website that had like a whole, or this particular like art piece that had a whole thing on intersectional feminism. And it seemed like you know, also a way to kind of get you online and get you to where they, like, where they were doing things. Um, so I sometimes saw that um, the tech was being used as, uh, like, like the line between tech and brand, like, technology as a, a, like, art material and technology as a branding device seemed a little mushy at times. Yeah, or, you know, and you talked about this earlier, particularly because you brought your students to Armory, that there was another sort of novel use of technology at Armory that Yeah, and it's actually a people. better example because this the piece I was just talking about actually took you to some place where there was some substance there. But this was like, uh, it was at the beginning of the Armory Fair on Pier 90, and they had, uh, it was basically a photo booth where you could sit down with uh, and pose with this sculpture that was like a sculpture of a hand, and it had colored pigment on it. You could choose different colors. I chose the one that, like, matched my nail polish. You know, that's how deep it was. Uh, they took a Polaroid, they put it on the wall, and then if you wanted to know anything about the artist, there was a QR code and you would just like use your phone um and find out about i think it was only one of the artists though so the mm. the video artist who was taking all the photos had a qr code and the artist who made the sculptures was actually there so you could talk to him and he would like tell you his name and you would have to write it down um and the other guy had the qr code so that's the whole story on the tech. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I to be fair, I saw most of um, Pier, Pier 90 with the focus sections and sort of what I guess Armory has, uh, since they got rid of Volta, which I still don't really understand what that was about. I don't even know if Volta still exists. It uh, does. Yeah, well, I mean, th this was, and, and they folded the modern section, right? Like the modern section at Armory used to be in its own wing, sort of the modern and, and fuddy-duddy works were sort of cast off into their own space, but now have just been folded into Pier 94, leaving Pier 90 as the kind of um, spring break with a budget uh, over <laughs> at, at Armory. Um, uh, 
before we leave Armory, and I'm sure we can we can come back around to the differences between Spring Break and Independent, but do we want to um, talk about any other specific artists that you saw or that we saw at um, Armory before we... I don't know how much more of Armory I can talk about since I only saw about like 30% of, of Pier 94 uh, during the, the opening evening on Wednesday. Yeah, sure. Um, I think like, so the highlight for me was the Adrian Wong piece at Carrie Seacrest Gallery. Um, and Adrian Wong worked with a telepathic animal communicator named Lynn Schuster, who would... Um, you could book an appointment with her and she would sit down as long as you had a photograph of your pet. Um, you could also bring your pet. So if your pet was dead, she would do a reading of the, you know, the dead pet, what it was doing. And if it was alive, you could bring the pet. You get that. So you have to pay 150 bucks, but you can like, you could learn about what your pet's up to. I, you know, the, the, the listener right now can't see my incredulity, you know, of like, the basic premise here there's a telepathic animal communicator yes and i i will just go on record and say i love this piece i don't know if i believe in um telepathic animal communicators but if i had 150 dollars, i would definitely have signed up for the reading of any one of my dead dogs which i still love and would and if i had had the money because what happens is that you can also you get a reading, but then you can also purchase a commission of your dead animal or a live animal. Oh, you get a, so you yeah. get a painted commission. Well, now it makes a lot of sense because I don't know if you've watched that show Fleabag at all. Yeah. So, you know, the is it what are the little guinea pigs in that show? There's like the guinea pig cafe. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there is a painting of like a guinea pig in that that project you're talking about. And my wife saw that and went, oh, Fleabag. And. You know, then we got talking about would we? Oh, that's want really a funny because that cat. apparently that painting was sold was the first one to sell. And I think Fleabag probably had a huge influence on moving <laughs> that guinea pig. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that giant cat condo or pet condo that was? Yeah, so there was like it's basically the booth was it was a two part booth. So in one part you'd have this. Uh, you'd have like a kind of living room area that had the painted commissions of the animals um, who had had their readings. In the other section, there was a giant luxurious castle for what appeared to be cats. So it looks like a cat house, but like this is a cat house for like uh, the wealthiest of cats. It's massive. It has uh, several stories. It has three store, no, four stories. Um, and it's, uh, sort of green covered in carpet, several ladders up to different levels. And behind it, there is a, uh, kind of diagram, uh, that is annotated. So it sort of, it looks like an architectural diagram. And then there are like arrows pointing to the different parts of the diagram because apparently the animal spirit talker spoke to several different uh, deceased animals and they helped her design this house so that so yes you guys can't see the uh, uh, 
the expression on William's face, but it seems that you are not a true believer. But let me tell you, William, I have another story. <laughs> when I was in grad school, oh boy, this woman named Kathy Hyde came to speak. And Kathy Hyde is a video artist who at the time was maybe like a little over 40 and began by telling us about these like videos that she'd made where she she had assumed that she was going to die. And she was doing these death poses and the cats, she had a lot of cats. The cats would just be walking over as she like was playing dead. Anyway, that particular series of work led into a series of works that she did with uh telepath an animal telepath who she then embarked on a relationship with and she was like just telling the class about all the different things that she's learned of course her cat is very critical of her it's always telling her that uh, she's not making enough work and she's not good enough and like all the rest and yes uh and uh, anyway, she, she, she's telling this story and like the whole time, like it's sort of preceded and punctuated by these like big breaths, you know, like she knows the story she's telling is totally crazy. So she'd be like, and so it's been really hard to get funding because, <laughs> You know, yeah, and it's just like, and we had just had like the week before, Carolee Schneeman had come in and given a talk, and Carolee was like, you know, it's like all this canonical work with the vaginal scroll and mm. the meat joy and all the rest. Then she gets to this like, and now I'm building shrines for my reincarnated cat, Carolee. Yeah, Carolee. So she, I mean, this cat had been reincarnated three times that she had like all these sets of photographs and like she basically, she ran into her reincarnated cat at her friend's place and was like, I know this seems crazy, but this is actually my cat. You need to give it to me. It's been reincarnated. And she managed to get the cat, her friend to give her the cat. And, you know, now it makes perfect sense. The curatorial premise of, I guess, the focus section it was, uh, who curated again? Um. Oh, Jamila James? Yeah, Jamila yeah. James. You know, and the theme is, what is the truth anyway? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that uh, is an absolutely amazing work and series of stories that get right at that question of what is the truth anyway. Oh, for sure. And I have to tell you that at that time with the Kathy High talk, you know, she had, it's like a talk in front of, I don't know, 50 students or something. And at the end, she has to say, so does anybody have any questions? Of course, like, everybody's got their <laughs> Oh, of right? course. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not that different from the kind of trend of, of, of people who genuinely have really gotten into astrology and tarot and are just seeking some other kind of way of processing and dealing with the world at this point, because it seems basically insane. I've actually seen um, curators that include their astrological charts in their biographies. Yeah, I mean, you know, the magical thinking might be completely necessary at this point, just as a, a way of a coping mechanism. Um, I, you know, I think the other question that, that I was sort of thinking about, that now I'm going to totally lose the thread, so I don't want to <laughs> disrupt the podcast. Um, 
Oh no! I mean, so that was I. I guess I'll say that that was that was a top pick of mine. Um, and the other thing, I guess the other booth that I had a little something to say about was Austin Lee at Jeffrey at Jeffrey Deitch, um, who is kind of. Uh, I guess he started showing at Postmasters in 2013-2014. Um, he did. He had he had at least one solo show at the gallery um, and had shown at some art fairs. But if you read Deitch's version of his resume, it completely excludes Postmasters, which uh, is a bit odd. Well, they definitely know about it because I was like, oh, yeah, I know this artist. I think this artist showed at Postmasters. And, and they were like, oh, yeah, that was their... That was his first solo show in 2015, mm-hmm. uh, which actually conveniently omits all the other work that Postmasters had done with them, uh, done with him for like the last couple years. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the reason that I thought that this work was worth noting was that the first show that he did, I think it was just called OK, 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 OK. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was the most wonderful show. So Austin Lee does these paintings that are like a lot of times they're kind of portraits and they're like sort of spray painted. And uh, the early ones kind of had this like South Park feel and it was a little bit unclear often. Like, you know, how much was like mediated by technology and how much was uh, like meaning like how much of how much technology was really shaping these things and how much like uh, the medium itself was shaping them. And that's kind of what I thought was interesting about them because they, you know, they're these buoyant colors and he had in that particular show probably like, I don't know, it looked like 50 works on one wall. These were all much larger, um, very simple as they normally are. You know, you only have like one smiley face or mm-hmm. whatever. But at that scale, there was really only one cat that I thought really stood out. The rest of them, I was kind of like, I don't know, if there were 50, <laughs> it'd be more of these like smaller things where it looked mm. like there was kind of this like, also just like a tremendous amount of energy, you know, like there's just like, you kind of felt like there was this urgency to just get this stuff out, like you know, experiment as much as possible. In the earlier shows? Yeah, in the earlier, in the earlier shows, which I felt like, you know, some of that urgency felt not there. It was like really slick. Which seems a shame for Jeffrey Deitch because, you know, he is not a dealer that demands that. Well, you know, I had a, a different sort of take on that. I mean, I feel like that booth was it's not just so much the booth. It was like my favorite scene at Armory was Jeffrey Deitch sitting at a small table with like three beautifully dressed women. Yes. um, Sort of holding court in front of these sort of, as you've described Austin's work, sort of simple, fun, exuberant, uh, you know, kind of Photoshoppy poster internet paintings where you can't quite sure is this guy using an airbrush? Does it matter? Uh, You know, it's that... There's a lot of cartoon energy in that work, but I felt like Deitch in that little table of all the personal magnetism of the gallery just kind of like froze everything. Like it was at the edge of the event horizon of a black hole and all of the kind of energy just was sort of stuck in almost like a a scene. I felt like it was a stage. And unfortunately the artwork wasn't starring. It was like Jeffrey Deitch and his, his, his sales force. You know what I think, you know, 
I'm really glad we're talking about this because I, w I don't know that I would have thought of this um, if you if you were sort of talking about this, but I, I think part of the problem is that they painted the, that booth, as we talked about it, it was one of those like painted wall booths, but it was painted this like really electric brilliant blue? blue. Yeah, like yeah. electric blue. Like yeah, and like, it, but not like blue screen of death blue. There no. was nothing that evoked the screen. The paintings evoked the screen. But the work itself doesn't. I think that like that color choice doesn't really align with like what he's trying to do, and that might have deadened the work a lot. I would agree with that, and you know, it's at like this, this point weird. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, there's something about it that's just like too polished. Yeah, I mean, I think Austin Lee's work is fine. He's such a nice guy. I mean, you know, I've known him for years now. Um, sort of casually through the galleries and I've seen the work develop. I've heard him talk about the work and, you know, at a certain point, you know, I'd love to see that work change. And I know he does a lot of experiments with technology. He's produced work in many different ways, but what Deitch is going to bring us is like the big version, the kind of cold yeah. version. There was something that, yeah, that kind of the monumentality of that whole thing killed it. And then having Deitch sitting there, it just created this kind of Baroque contrast between the comic and then this, the very realness of them sitting in this stage. Yeah. Right? It was like yeah. a weird backdrop and I just felt like I couldn't enter that space or if I'd entered in that space I would have been frozen in time like that work somehow it just suddenly like you know I, I wouldn't be able to get out of there. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was right at like a kind of the corner of like spectacle and spectacle where there was the Ed and Nancy Keenholz piece like the hearse van thing. I don't know if you saw that. It was like a old ambulance or something that you could climb into. Oh, I don't uh, remember that. From the 70s and that was that was right. You, it might have been easy to miss with the electric blue thing happening. But that was also at the same corner where there was um uh, Feldman Gallery had yes. a Hannah Wilkie installation that my wife and I both thought was one of the best things that we saw in the main period armory. I thought that was interesting because like they have a lot of the similar works that uh, Aquavella is going to show in like mm. April. They have this like huge catalog coming out, all the rest. And I was just, I don't know what the relationship is between like this Hannah Wilkie show that's about to launch mm. and this one that is launching. Yeah, I don't know. And I, I don't know what's up with like Feldman Gallery. He announced his retirement. Yes. I don't know if they're moving into secondary dealing and will just be representing estates. And it was sort of interesting because that that also had one of the weirdest contrasts. I don't really want to go into the other work that was in the booth, but basically it it was an artist who had beat a giant mound of clay to a pulp and then made... Oh, castles. Castles. Yeah. I mean, if you're a fan, that's amazing. Um, I just thought it was a little bit more mixed martial arts than like Master of Fine Arts. And the way it was presented had that whole feeling of like Vegas spectacle, which I'm sure the work was sort of about. Well, to some degree, but so castles, uh, uh, castles, uh, I think identifies as they, that's the mm -hmm. proper pronoun. And, uh, the work is a lot, I don't, I don't know how, I don't remember how they would describe it, but I guess I, I think about it, um, at least partially as, as about, bodybuilding mm -hmm. so it's a lot about body modification and like how mm -hmm. far you can push something to an extreme yeah. and so like 
Castle's body is kind of crazy, like what she can do with it. And like that is just kind of what's left over. Um, so it's a little bit like, you know, when you're, you know, it's a little bit like looking at any kind of conceptual art um, where like what's left over is like the leftovers yeah, from a performance. I can't go that far because it leans so much into the culture of fighting and violence that it just makes me sort of uncomfortable. And it's not a culture that I'd want to kind of be around. Like, I don't want to go to the MGM Grand and see boxers fighting. I don't want to be, you know, sort of in that space. And that's where the work kind of goes right into. And Castles was present wearing a kind of very, uh, you know, almost what I would expect like a, a fighter to be wearing around about, you know, kind of gaudy, a little bit spectacly, all of the way the photos were presented. And it was such a contrast between that and like the Hannah Wilkie, you I know, representation. about it as athletics, not like boxing. Cause she's not boxing anybody else, you know? Mm-hmm. I, you know, the, the, The cultural references, yeah, I just are just so close to that kind of language, whether or not they are fighting another person, but that like endurance, pushing the body to its limits, it seemed and the way the photographs were presented, they're all black and white. There was this kind of like, you can almost hear the bell, you know, the announcer's bell or something before the fight, like that level of spectacle kind of turned me off from the work otherwise. You know, that maybe there is something about... I feel like there's got to be a better way to present that work because, like, when Castle talks about it, too, like, there's something about it that feels, like, really empowering, like, listening to them speak. Like, Castle's, like, is a very, very good speaker. And, like, Mm -hmm. there's not that... You know, there's not that question, you know, I think with work that's undeveloped, like, about why it's being made... You know, there's no kind of ambiguity there. Like, they know exactly what they're doing. Um, And I kind of feel like there's maybe a disconnect between that and, like, just this bronzed lump of clay. But it doesn't seem... I mean, I would say that it seems like the things that you are complaining about are not things that I care about and the things that I care about are not things that you're complaining about. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, uh, you know, there's, it, there's a lot going on with that work, but in the sort of presence of the art fair, you know, it just, that piece, uh, I, I'm not, I guess I'm not completely on board with where it locates the kind of identity of the artist and what that kind of you know, it reminds me a bit of like Matthew Barney trying to scale up through the Guggenheim, you know, or these kind of masculine kind of traits as being associated with intense competition and athletics, which I think athletics are just a form of competition. They may not be as violent as mixed martial arts, but right, punching the hell out of that giant piece of clay, you know, brings me to that space. And it's just not a space I'm interested in hanging out and exploring necessarily as art. Uh, fair enough. Uh, do we want to talk about what we liked at, uh, some other, uh, some other places? Yeah, we can do that sort of quickly. The, the last thing that I would want to mention before we leave Armory completely is that, um, my wife and I don't always love the same artworks, but we both thought that Matt Bollinger's, um, drawings in particular at Zercher were really sort of awesome. Um, 
and what did they look like? So I would say they were kind of like muted uh, Dana Schutz put through the lens of like David Lynch, you know, these kind of isolated scenes, sort of lumpy characters. Um, They were sort of banal, um, busy in a way that sort of served to create atmosphere uh, in the drawings. And so just monochromatic graphite drawings, large scale. One of was like a woman sitting on a couch in a living room and I mean, they were um, a little bit sad sack, you know, and sort of muted. And then he had presented a series of smaller um, paintings on the outside of the gallery wall that uh, were relying on a kind of different skill set in terms of the paintings, but they were also kind of muted and melancholy and just kind of turned the value down, I guess, in a way that allowed me to look at these just kind of odd, flat-footed characters. And so, I, you know, maybe they evoked a little bit of a Gustin for me as well or something. But Kristen and I both really uh, responded to those, those works. Um, and that doesn't always happen, so I thought it was worth mentioning. Oh, for sure. I also just wanted to mention that, you know, uh, to all of our listeners who go out to, to these things and find things that they really like, I always find it kind of impressive that anybody finds anything at these fairs because there's so much of it that it's like unless you have a pre-existing knowledge I think they can be really overwhelming and like I would imagine not that that much fun um like you know as insiders it's pretty I think easy for us to sort of dig into uh, you know artists that we know or like be able to sort of pull certain things out but every time I talk to somebody they've always seen things that I've like missed and vice versa so yeah and just uh also it was interesting it was a little bit surprising I got to actually um say hello to Kamasi J. Barnett whose work we talked about two years ago at spring break who's doing the amazing black man project oh yeah yeah and so it was back at uh Ryan Lowell gallery and you know I asked him how it was going and he said it was going great and then I saw one of the um, Artnet what was selling at the fairs, and it went really well for Kumasi. Uh, apparently sold the $20,000 neon sign as a particular piece, and then 42 of the $2,500 comic books sold. Oh my god, I so love that in story. two-year time span, I don't know exactly where Kumasi was career-wise or how, if his art was selling or not two years ago at spring break, but let's just say that project you know, hopefully will sustain his, his practice for quite some time. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's really great. It was exciting. Um, so do we want to, do we want to now travel from Armory to Spring Break or do we want to go to uh, Independent? Well, maybe let's do, I mean, I have a little bit more to say about Spring Break than okay. I do uh, the Independent. So I have maybe. a few, a few things that I think, you know, might be worth mentioning, but um, not a whole lot to add. Okay, so uh, I wanted to point out or, or just give, uh, you know, uh, a nod to Nathan Raymond, who uh, did Gallery, which is, it's literally called Gallery, but he runs something called Gallery Cubed. Um, and basically, like, at the uh, Spring Break Fair, what he was showing was uh, this like makeshift anti-gravity chamber, uh, which in my experience achieved no actual anti-gravity. 
Uh, William, did you go in? I didn't, but it was billed to me as just a, a, a place to get a bit of isolation from the excess of the fare. So I was like, oh, good, counter-programming. Counter oh. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was told that this bed was developed by NASA um, and that it was supposed to achieve uh, anti-gravity. And I was like, wait, really? And he was like, yeah, really. Did his cat tell him that? <laughs> I mean, he told me several things that I, and I had to, and I, I think each time I was like, wait, for real? And at a certain point, I was like, okay, I'm like not 19. I can't mm -hmm. keep speaking like this. But also each time I asked that question, he was like, yeah, for real. NASA really does develop these beds. I Googled it. I didn't find anything about it. I didn't actually feel any anti-gravity. It's just a nice curved bed. Uh, so that's nice. Uh, but the thing that's interesting about this particular project is that, you know, Raymond is this real salesman and he's not actually selling the experience, although you can spend 10 bucks and get these like branded gallery, like earplugs and like, uh, what do you call it? Like the things that cover your eyes, the night mask or whatever. Mm. Um, he, uh, he sells a franchise. So what you buy is that weird, like makeshift cube space that he stuck the bed in and you can move that. And the whole thing, it's like a kit. So you can put it together anywhere, like disassemble it. And like, you know, on the website, he's like, you know, make your own community. You can build it, like plop this thing. I mean, it's awful, right? It's like every, like, terrible, like, social practice idea is, like, it seems like it's just all being made fun of in this, like, makeshift, like, buy your own kit. Like, it comes with a, you know, its own electrical outlet, like. Yeah, yeah, you drop, drop that down in, you know, the middle of uh oakland and say let's uh come in and have a tea with me and we'll 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 communicate uh, yeah we'll see how long it yeah. takes for the fire department to shut yeah. us down i know um, so but also you know i was pretty tired by that point so i was actually it's kind of nice to sit on the bed i would have it, you know that reminds me and i don't know the name of the project but it was the project that was selling trump impeachment coins Oh, yeah. Like that had a lot of, you know, it was like art is memorabilia, you know, that the, the sort of coin is the political gesture. And I looked at the price list and I was like, I don't have 150 bucks to invest in like a Trump memorabilia coin. And I'm so disappointed in the Trump impeachment, the entire process, all of it. It's so traumatic. I just it like I was triggering me. I was like, I got to get out of this booth. I don't want any one of these. I don't want this coin. Well, the coins were terribly designed too. like it was like I just don't want any part of something like that. I mean, the whole thing is sort of it's one of those things that I don't think needs to exist. Trump no. already makes his own coins. Yeah. So like, I'm sure he's, I mean, the crazy thing is, is that, I mean, he produces terribly, terribly t tacky stuff. And I mm -hmm. would imagine that if he were to do a, an impeachment coin, it would still look better than this. Yeah, you can't fight tacky with tacky, you know, like in this case, it just didn't seem to work. Yeah. So, uh... Yeah, the other thing I thought uh, was worth mentioning was uh, Emily McElworth and Evan Pepper, uh, Q 
curated the booth with uh, Sheila Sherman, um, and she makes these like sprawling forts out of crocheted blankets and like repurposed bolts of fabric, um, and they like sort of draw on nostalgia, like millennial slang. There's like a clock that has a an arm that just moves back and forth. Uh, over the words, like, over the letters that spell out extra. Um, and she uses, like, these repurposed screens uh, throughout the piece. So there was a bunch of, like, landscapes, but they yeah, were lifted those were from, embedded like, beer into ads. the yeah, yeah. yeah. And then she had, like, a whole kind like, once you went into the fort, you could, like, sit down on this chair, and there was, like, a disco ball above. And, like, you know, it's, I, I just think, like, you know, nostalgia is something that is a little bit of a moving target, uh, and almost it's it's very hard to find uh, a true kind of nostalgia anymore. And I feel like she's like she's pretty good at it. Yeah, I mean, I would love to kind of imagine what it would be like to encounter that piece in a gallery. Um, without 800 other things sort of pulling me away from that kind of sitting down, hanging out in the space and really considering it. Because I just feel like I didn't give it that much of, um, I didn't give it that much time to kind of find out what makes this sort of, what moves it beyond just the impressive kind of form of the thing. Because I thought, you know, I sort of walked, navigated around it and thought, wow, that's pretty ambitious but it's also kind of stuffed in a transitional passageway. Oh, yeah, you know? for sure. And I just, it, I didn't come back around, you know. She has this, like, uh, crocheted, or actually, I don't think crocheted is the right word. It's, like, latch-hooked mm-hmm. uh, piece where she had this, like, owl. Um, and it just had one eye, so it was this, like, all-seeing owl that I thought was really kind of an interesting um, transformation of a very kind of common type of iconography that would end up on these things that um, that transforms this thing into something that's like something of a cyclops. Mm. So I thought that was really... This sounds so... even I mean, it looked impressive and you had found more within it than I certainly did just because I didn't spend that much time in it. Um, but did you go into the cardboard installation? Oh yeah. The Hershorn inspired cardboard. I mean, that was like nostalgic for Hershorn, but that just felt so generic. I kind of moved through that thing and was like, just utterly disappointed. So yeah, that, I think that apparently was a remake of like, uh, like German sites for the Holocaust. Oh God. Um, I did not get that deep into what those objects were or lamps or sites. It just, I don't know. Yeah. So I guess that would count as a potentially failed project. It didn't really seem that well executed or yeah. Interesting. So let's move on to the independent. Uh, there were a couple booths that we we actually went to this show together. So of course, when that happens, you end up with a lot of the same things that you want to talk about. Uh, what were a couple of the booths that we liked? 
Uh, I think we responded to some of the paintings at Gallery Jocelyn Wolf, and also various small fires. It had right. some interesting paintings by Jesse Homer French. Yeah, and I think like uh, one of the things that uh, sort of comes up, particularly uh, in the Miriam Kahn uh, paintings that we were really interested in, is this sort of theme of figuration in the body that I I think like seemed particularly evident to me uh, at the Independent, um, although I'm sure it was elsewhere. But there was a lot of like really sort of slick sculptures that were bodily in nature, uh, sometimes, you know, evoking uh, butts and boobs, um, you know, uh, usually pretty sexy because of the kind of production values that were associated with uh, the independent. So the independent is definitely um, well-funded, yeah, the independent was, you know, it just it's a different kind of atmosphere. I would say it's uh, a little more European. It smells better. It looks better. Everyone's a little bit better dressed. It's a little bit more of a grown up affair than spring break. Uh, and the trade off there is that uh, there's a lot of polished work. And I think one of the things that like stuck out for me was if we were talking about that trend of painting, I don't remember the artist's name, but the Anton Kern booth had these kind of like large scale, good, bad, bad paintings, but I just, I didn't really believe in them. I just thought that they were um, kind of too slick and not really good. And there wasn't a whole lot there. They were just kind of like messy, abstract faces. Yeah. I mean, I think one problem that definitely stood out to me that there was, there was sort of a lot of formalism without it actually without there being the same kind of rigor applied to the development of concepts. Yeah, and, you know, I think with the gallery Jocelyn Wolf, I, I don't remember the other artist's name because it was a two-person booth, really, but um, was it Miriam Khan? Yes. Yeah, Mir- or is it Miriam or Miriam? I have Miriam. Okay, Miriam Khan. I mean, there was just something so atmospheric about the paintings that we really responded to that contributed to the whole booth. And it had a kind of, it wasn't really anything conceptual that was driving it for me. It was more of, you know, one, there was one figure that was sort of like a female alien ghost-like character with these kind of like stubby little hands that just broke down into brush strokes with sort of like well-rendered hanging boobs, you know, and this kind of glowing vagina. And then on the other wall, there was sort of, the male counterpart kind of more warmly painted figure with, you know, a penis and balls and, you know, uh, and, and all of that, these little moments of kind of anatomical representation are coming out of these kind of fields of color that were sort of somewhat, you know, they had a kind of internal light source to them and they balance that line between being really well done, naive kind of expressionistic paintings that for me kind of define that I, if you're going to approach painting in a kind of flat footed, awkward way, I think Miriam did a, a sort of an amazing job at that. Um, and that they kind of spoke to me, I guess. Yeah. So these were glowing nudes, yeah. you know, they sort of popped out of the kind of background space that they seemed to emerge from. So like 
uh, as you had described before, like the the background um, in the painting that I just named Zombie, um, <laughs> which was the female nude with a kind of hanging boobs and glowing vagina and glowing hands too, you know? Like she comes out of this like really deep, rich field of green. Mm. Um, and conversely, the guy that... Uh, this painting I just nicknamed Glowing Penis. I might call him Glowing, you know, like war, Warlock with Glowing Penis or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. I mean, there's a lot going up, going on in the head area. Like yeah. the the bottom part of him is uh, sort of rendered as if like there's um, like a kind of glowing whitish skin. But, but as you go up, it's like... His skin is kind of attached to a toaster or something. Yeah. You know, it starts to really glow. And he's coming out of an equally dark background, I think. That one has sort of purplish hues to it. But they're, these figures are just very strange. They don't... Uh, I don't look at them and, like, think... Like, there doesn't appear to be a specific politics attached to them. Um, they're just sort of eerie uh, figures. Yeah, it felt more like sci-fi horror to me, you know, and the other artist in the booth was a little bit more, felt like more traditional surrealist approach to art making or drawing. Um, But yeah, I mean, if there was a sort of politics to it, it was just a kind of reference to uh, something horrific or, you know, kind of science fiction or uh, I was thinking like witch and warlock in this, but also filtered through like alien conspiracies or something. They were oh, it's just, very X-Filing. Yeah, yeah. And they were really strange. Um, and that, I guess, you know, makes them, they do stand apart from so much of the other painting that I saw at Armory um, or Spring Break, perhaps, that was really dealing with concrete fixed identities you know uh bodies in space and whether it's people of color or african-american bodies these were just in another direction of you know the magical or the occult or something that um it wasn't quite as clear you know yeah um yeah so the other uh pieces we really liked were at uh uh, Various Small Fires, which is a uh, L.A.-based uh, gallery. And uh, we really enjoyed the work of Jesse Homer French. So he was making... Uh, was it a he or a she? Oh, actually, I don't know. Uh, yeah, a- it's a, it's, she is a, a, a you know, a kind of self-taught uh, regional narrative painter born in 1940. Oh, great. Okay, so she's making these paintings that uh, representational uh, seem to respond to uh, climate change in some way. Um, Although, you know, you could read them probably a lot of different ways, but, uh, you know, they're very, very flat the way that they're rendered. And so you might see, for example, one uh, sort of pictorial composition shows a graveyard and then sort of capsules that show the dead people underneath the ground. And another you see like a, a, a sort of constellation of deers hanging out, these like uh, orange fire signs. And then in another you actually see this like, it's called brush fire, and it's a very long horizontal fi- uh, image. It's just fire, like yeah. brush fire. 
Yeah, the 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 scenes of bodies in cemeteries for me, you know, that was like I, I think I mentioned that, you know, the best painting about the coronavirus and the coming pandemic, you know, that I'd seen at the fairs. The one painting that really stuck out to me that sort of like getting at who is the subject, if there is a subject of critique of this work, there's one called Howard Howard Bolster Gets His Buck from 2019. And it's an image of a guy hobbling out at the door of his, you know, sort of colonial-looking home with a cast on his leg with a shotgun going to shoot the deer standing, you know, in the front yard, basically. And there's something about that, uh, just the kind of gun culture insanity of somebody hobbled, you know, running out to shoot the deer in their yard a kind of existential laziness or something around hunting that, you know, who's responsible for the brush fires, who's responsible for these sort of other awful threats, you know, and for me, it's that guy with the cast, you know? Yeah. There seems to be like, I don't know if it's like truth exactly, but if we choose that as a theme that kind of goes like, that goes through all of the fairs. This like this does have a degree of honesty to it that I I really appreciate. Like it seems like the kind of folk art that like would come out of this time. And like seems like an actual representation of as like the bad stuff that's happening without, you know, yeah, it's not processed or filtered through any kind of conceptual lens or, you know, it's I mean, they're not theoretical scenes, lens. you know, I they're think strange that's a- little weird scenes about, you know, uh, the situation in America, but, you know, yeah, without flags that. all over them, you know, right? Yeah, I mean, well, it's Americana, but a kind of critical Americana, you know, and it doesn't it just it stood out it, it unti- uh, independent in part because I don't think we see that much um, sort of self-taught, you know, sort of outsider art at that fair to the same degree. I mean, there was so much other sort of highly polished conceptual art. I think I spent like 20 minutes talking about one artist who had a unique racking system to hang photos of celebrities, you know, it was like (laughs) super highly produced, sort of interesting work. Uh, But, you know, that sort of the other end of the spectrum of, of Jesse Homer French's sort of naive but sort of honest paintings in a way that I think we all recognize those situations, you know, whether it's Trump's America or just, like, who's to blame in all this, you know? I mean, I will uh, I will uh, mention to our listeners that uh, uh, Andrew Edlin was also at the fair and he represents uh, outsider art, so, like, maybe that is the fair that sort of is more friendly to that particular type of art making. That gallery had an artist whose name I can't remember, who I think you really liked. Uh, Oh, yeah, these sort of diagrammatic, um, almost astrological or something. I don't know exactly what they were diagramming out, but they were done in colored pencil, and they were masterful. And I sort of exclaimed, these are the best use of colored pencil I'd ever seen, you know, and sort of like, any kind of contemporary artwork, be it outsider art or not, 
Um, in part because I, I had just done a studio visit with a, a student down at Tyler who is using colored pencil, and we just got into a sidetracked conversation about how it's sort of a, a, a medium that not too many artists have been able to successfully use, colored pencil. I don't know if it's just, you know, the um, medium itself has too many associations with, like, high school. I just feel like that's coming back, though. I mean, maybe it's just that I don't want to say the word cj henry yeah <laughs> okay but like i mean different thing but like nicholas party uh yeah. you know the pastel work that he did like it was presented with a full set of pastels that he... i mean pastels you know i think of wolf con and a kind of you know impressionistic period i mean there's pastels have their own baggage sure but the colored pencil doesn't even get that kind of french you know it doesn't have that kind of historical weight that the pastel has <laughs> yeah. get your da vinci pastels it's like no you can get your prisma colors you know like it all just has a kind of art school thing to it that you know if anyone can make a colored pencil jump in and go beyond what I kind of think about the colored pencil, then that's kind of awesome. I will say that CJ Henry keeps threatening to release her new line of colored pencils. Oh, wow. Okay. So we may be in for a treat. So you can get CJ Henry colored pencils. And do you think Nicholas Party is going to release his own line of pastels? Oh, I hope so. Party pastels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think that might be sort of it for our Art Fair Week recap. Yeah, but I want to say that, uh, you know, to our listeners, if this works out, we're able to just, uh, uh, you know, wrap this up in a kind of neat way. This is hopefully a format that we can repeat again. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be great to do the podcast on a slightly more regular basis and certainly more than once a year. Yes, Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll see you next time, guys. All right. Take care.